Good to be with you this morning. We've got several visitors with us, and we are so excited to have you. Uh, some are back with us, and we are grateful that you've come to join us in the worship of God. We are blessed today with a beautiful day to be together and to glorify the name of our God and Creator. In Mark chapter 8, which we have read already, you have a context where Jesus is with his, his apostles. Get this moved correctly here. Jesus is with his apostles, and, uh, and they're, are, they're kind of just talking to, uh, to themselves about something that Jesus had said. And he had warned them and encouraged them. He says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they started thinking, oh, I th- you know, he's saying this because we forgot to bring, bring bread on our journey. And Jesus then began to kind of challenge their thinking by basically saying, don't you remember? You know, don't you remember what I did when I fed the 5,000? And don't you remember what I did when I fed the 4,000? And you think about that question, do you not remember? Illustrates a very simple fact about humanity, about all of us, that there is this tendency that most people forget. And in our forgetting, sometimes we fail to make a proper application of what has happened or what has been said. God is great. God is good. And all the works of God that he's done for the beginning of creation should fill us with wonder. When you read the Gospels, it should cause you to be filled with amazement and awe as you think about all the different things that Jesus did, such as feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000. And what an amazing thing that was. We don't need to allow the familiarity of the story to cause us to diminish our wonder and our amazement of the works of God. Jesus Christ is truly God's son. But when children of God fail to know or fail to remember well the amazing works of God, when we begin to kind of forget or we don't remember as well the, the stories we learned in our childhood or the, the account we have, read, we have read recently, when we begin to forget along the way, well, children of God can be, begin to forget God. When we forget what God has done, there, that will lead to the fact we forget God. A lack of knowledge, we are told, and by one of the prophets, is that lack of knowledge leads to unbelief. A lack of knowledge leads to apostasy. We all recognize that the testimony of history is this. The testimony of history is that it reveals that we don't learn from history. Now, we're supposed to learn from history, but you know, what it tells us is that mankind in general just tends to keep on repeating some of the same mistakes that have been made in the past. That is why the stories of the Bible, the great stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that is why they have been preserved by God's revelation 
by God's providence. We have the Bible so that we will not forget, so that we can remember. And even when our memories begin to slip and, we, and those perhaps some of the, the accounts or details of the story are not as clear as they used to be, we can go back and we reread that again because we need to remember and we need to remember so not only we know the facts of the story, but so we can learn the lessons of old. So we can make the right kind of applications. And so I continue today on a series that I've begun this year about remembering the works of God. And today we're going to focus on the fact that God led his people. God led his people. This statement says a lot about God. And it says something about his people too. God led his people. So we're going to begin reading here in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament in the days of Moses as the people have come out of Egypt And God is leading that nation away from their captivity. So in the 13th chapter of Exodus, beginning in verse 17, the inspired word of God says this. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Moses took, excuse me, verse 18. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you should carry my bones from here with you. Joseph has been dead and gone for a long time, but before he died, he knew what God would do. He would lead his people back to the land that he had promised his grandfather Abraham. Verse 20, Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night. God led his people. God is the one. Jehovah is the one here directing things. He is the one who is guiding this nation that is fleeing out of their captivity. And I want to suggest to you, it is the omniscience of God that empowers him to be the perfect one to lead any people. Why is that? Because God knows. God knows everything, and when you begin reading this this account of God leading the people out of Egypt... We see, first of all, God knew the Israelites. God knew the people. And so he knew, well, I don't need him taken this way because I know them. I know what their heart is. 
And you think of that idea, God knew the strengths of the Israelites, God knew the weaknesses of the Israelites. Why is that? Because God knows the deeds of every man. God knows his people. He knows the hearts of men. In John chapter 2, in describing Jesus himself, when you think about John chapter 2, we have a couple verses describing Jesus during his ministry early on, at the beginning of his ministry. This is what it says about Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. God led his people. And it is his omniscience, it is his knowledge of everyone that empowered him to be the one that needs to lead his people. Jesus knows the heart of every man. Yeah, Jesus knows, for example, in Luke 9, talks about an occasion when the apostles were kind of arguing a little bit among themselves about who's the greatest. And they hadn't voiced this to Jesus yet, but we're told in the 47th verse of the ninth chapter that God, that Jesus knew what they were thinking. He already knew what they were thinking, and then so Jesus addressed the problem. Jesus knew, knew Jesus knows, because the application is that Jesus knows you and me. Jesus knows you. And he knows me. In Matthew 6, for example, it is in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus there admonished us in those verses, in that particular paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, he admonished us that we don't need to worry. Don't worry about this and don't worry about that. Particularly, you know, food and clothing and those kind of things. Don't worry about those things. And and we don't need to do that. We perhaps do sometimes. It's harder to do that than to preach it. It's easy to say don't worry. It's not always easy to not worry. But it's in that context when we're told, don't worry about these things, you know, where in chapter 6, verse 32, it says, the Lord God knows what you need. One reason we're told not to worry is because God says, I know you, I know what you need. Or Hebrews 4, 13 talks about nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. It describes how, All of us are, in a sense, naked and bare before him. God knows. And so God led his people back in the days of of Egypt. And what's the lesson that we need to learn is that God knows us. God knew them and God knows us today as well. But also God knew the best route to be taken there. He didn't take them by that one way that was the closest route because he knew them. He knew their hearts. So he took them by a different way. And so it's going to be a little bit harder journey, a longer journey, but it was the best route. It was the right way. Why is that? 
Because God knew which obstacles the people would be able to bear, and he knew which ones they would be unable to bear. The path God chose for Israel was the right path. Now, they may may have kind of taken somewhat argument to that, but God knew the right path to be taken. You know, our creator has blessed mankind, has blessed us with intelligence. And there are some extremely smart people in this world. I mean, extremely smart, extremely intelligent men and women, far above my capabilities. But no matter how intelligent mankind has been or is, when you look at the world... And you look at people's lies, when you and I, or when mankind in general, when we are left to ourselves alone without God's wisdom, when we are left to ourselves, we always take the wrong turn. In the end, we'll take the wrong turn. Men and women... You think about just history and our our times in the world. Men and women, we can make a mess of things, can't we? Not just in our personal life, but, you know, we can mess up other things because we make bad choices, we make wrong decisions, and and that's what the issue of sin is all about. We We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we did that when we were listening to ourselves. We were following our own wisdom. We were following the world's wisdom. And we were not listening to God. We weren't walking in God's way. God knows the best route to be taken. And we are told in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 7, there basically, you can kind of narrow down, there are two paths. Two Just two paths. If you just sum it all up, he says there's two paths that you can take. One leads away from God. One leads to God. It's that simple. Now, we mess up things, and we make our life hard. But it's that simply. And that may sound an oversimplification, but God is trying to get get that across to us. That in Matthew chapter 7, verse verse, uh, 14 There is a narrow and straight path that leads to life. And there's one that does not. And we're told in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to the Father but by me. Jesus is that path. God has chosen the path. And God always chooses the right path. And Jesus is that path to life, to blessedness. God chose his son to be the savior, to to be the perfect redeemer, to call us out of our sins and lead us to heaven. There's no other way but Jesus Christ. The apostles preached that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when Peter and John are there giving a defense for Jesus and for the work that they're doing in preaching the gospel. And he says, there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. There's a lot of different faiths in the world. And there's a lot of different religions in the world. 
But there's only one faith and one Lord that leads you to eternal life in heaven. It's Jesus. God has chosen the path. God led his people. And God would lead you too. John 6, 68, we read some from that chapter already this morning. It is there when Jesus is asking the, the apostles, because of the teaching there in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus very boldly preached, I am the bread of life, and you need to eat me. You need to, you need to partake of me. You need to ingest me. You know, that many in that large multitude of followers couldn't swallow the message anymore. And they left. So the crowd diminished because they just couldn't accept the fact he, he, he is the bread of life. And so many left. And so Jesus you know, turns to his apostles and asks them, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave because of the hard things I'm teaching? And Peter responds, where can we go, Lord? You have, you have the words of eternal life. God has chosen our path. And it's the right one. And it's Jesus Christ. And so we have to do what he has revealed and taught. We have to stop doing what he's revealed and taught us not to do. We have to repent of sin. We have to be baptized into Christ. We need to worship the Heavenly Father in spirit and truth. We need to forgive as God forgives. There's all number of things that the gospel reveals to us that presents us the challenge of walking the right path that is a narrow, constricting path that leads to life. God led his people. And when you think about the idea, in doing so, God was ever before them day and night. There in the days of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God made his presence known to Israel by a visible pillar of cloud and a visible pillar of fire. You know, God is not a cloud and God is not a fire. He is, not, you know, he is not that physical substance. But he made his presence known to them in those days by this pillar of, of cloud and a pillar of fire. And you think about it, when you're reading numbers and the ups and downs of, of the nation of Israel. And the, and the repeated times they showed unbelief as children of God. The cloud and the fire... We're always there. You ever thought about that? Think of all the stories when the Israelites complained and grumbled and turned away from God and, and, and they disobeyed. All those times that God, they were disobeying God and God had to discipline them at the, in that moment. There was always the cloud in the day. And the fire in the night. It was always there. God's presence 
God's presence was before them constantly. They may have wavered, the Israelites may have wavered repeatedly in unbelief, but God was the absolute constant. God was the unchanging one. Why is that? Well, it's because of the character of God. Is it because of the faithfulness of God? You think about what John writes in uh, John, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, you know, uh, verse 8, it's the throne scene. It's describing God Almighty on his throne. And all these heavenly beings are surrounding the throne. And what are they saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and forevermore will be. He doesn't change. He is always there. And he manifested that to Israel, the people he brought out of captivity and was leading along the way. Yes, it was a hard journey. But in spite of their disobedience and belief, God continued to be the one he promised to be. And he communicated clearly, he communicated clearly when and where to camp and when to break camp. That is meticulous. God was there constantly, and he told him when to go and when to stop. And you see that, for example, in the account in Numbers chapter 9. And to me, I think this is an impressive uh, text because of what God is communicating and and what the people are expected to do. The two sides of the coin there. He says, now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, so you've got the tabernacle is completely finished now. The day it was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle. There's that pillar of cloud. It covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So that cloud was always there in the daytime. It was always there at night. The fire was always there in the nighttime. So it was, verse 16, continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. And even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, one night, from evening till the morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. If it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through 
Moses. God communicated clearly about the travel plans of the nation through the wilderness. God did the leading here. God did the leading, not Moses. Moses was God's servant. Moses was God's spokesman. But God did the leading. God did the commanding. God made the decision. The authority of God and the authority of his directions are not to be disregarded, are they? A world, I mean, excuse me, a light has been sent into our world too. A light has been sent into our world too. It's not a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, day and night kind of thing, but a light has been into our world, and it is that light that we need to follow. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his who? His Son, Jesus Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. It is then in that same book over in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, as the inspired writer continues to give his exhortation, he says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention. Is in the context of the fact that the Son is so much greater and superior than angels. He's the Son. He's not just an angel. He is the Son of God. He is deity. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the Lord, for the, if the word spoken through angels is proved unalterable and every transgression has been received a just penalty, how will we escape? How will we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. God has sent us a light. And we're to follow that light. It's the Son. The Son of God. That's why in the Great Commission of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20, where it talks about how, you know, go into all, the, all nations, make disciples of those nations, baptizing them. And in verse 20, he says, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. God does the leading. God does the commanding. And he has spoken to us through his son, who is the light of the world. In John's very small epistle, small letter there, in 2 John verse 9, He says, if you abide in the doctrine of Christ, you have both the Father and the Son. You want to be right with God? You have to abide in the teaching and the doctrine of Christ. You have to abide and walk in the light of the world. That's Jesus Christ. And in Exodus chapter 9, we see that the people were obligated to follow according to the command of the Lord. Every time that cloud moved or stopped, That's exactly what the nation had to do, move or stop. When you follow the leader, what do you do? What do you do when you follow the leader? You do what the leader does or what the leader says, don't you? 
We learn, you know, you, we learn that, that, that principle, which is a very mature adult concept, but we start learning that in our childhood when we play the game, follow the leader. It's an important lesson. The problem is when we get old or older, is that's when we, we, we kind of forget the lesson. That's why we need to remember the great works of God. That's why we need to know these stories of the Bible they're not just some bedtime you know, story to help a child kind of relax and fall asleep. They are intended to impact our lives so that we walk with God properly. You think of that, whether they camp one day, whether they camped a month, or whether they camped one year in a single place, the Israelites were required to set up camp or break camp as God indicated. The nation's opinions, the nation's emotions, the nation's wisdom didn't matter. God made the decision. He knew best. He knew best. And they simply needed to listen and obey. And so the, as we think about that, the same is true for us. We must obey Jesus because all authority belongs to him. In Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, you know, verse 11 and 12, talks about how the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and teaching us. The grace of God teaches us something. What does it teach? Well, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, as he writes to Titus, says, instructing us or teaching us to deny ungodliness and worthy desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We are, we are obligated if we're going to follow the leader that God has chosen or the path that God has chosen is Jesus Christ, we are obligated to do as the Lord commands, such as living every day righteously, godly, and sensibly, according to his will and according to his word. And that includes stopping those things that God tells us to stop doing. Galatians 5, where we are given the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are? And he starts listing them. Yeah. God is clear in his communication. He's very, you know, it's not that we can't understand what the word says. You, it's the issue, do I want to receive what the word says? He says, the deeds of the flesh are, are these, immorality or sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we're going to follow the command of the Lord, then we need to live the way the Lord tells us to live, and we need to stop doing the things the Lord tells us to stop doing. It is a straight and narrow path that leads to life and the promised land of heaven. Let's end with one more great wonder of God that he did in the days of Exodus. 
where we are told about how Jehovah saved Israel. Jehovah saved Israel through water. Many of you know the story when the Israelites left that Pharaoh had a change of heart and it was not a good change. The fact that Pharaoh hardened his heart after letting the nation go and he begins to pursue them. He's going to hunt them down and bring them back into slavery. And here you find, here are the Israelites on, on the edge of the wilderness. The Red Sea is in front of them. And the great Egyptian army is coming up from behind them. And to the Israelites, to the people, it appeared to be a death trap. We're surrounded. Nothing can be done. We're dead. But God stepped in. God led his people. In chapter 14, verse 30 and 31, as this account is coming to its conclusion, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw Egyptians dead on the seashore. That is not a pretty picture. But God led his people. God kept his promise. God fought and delivered his people mightily. God led the way. And the first thing he did is you go back and you read this wonderful story. A story that has great lessons for us to learn even still today. The first thing he did that God protected them. God protected his people so they could partake of the victory that they're going to attain. What did he do? Well, remember that cloud? You know, wherever that cloud led them and wherever that cloud stopped, that's what they did. Well, that cloud, we're told here in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before them moved and went behind him and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind. So now the cloud is between the army and Israel. And there it stayed. And there was... There was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. The Egyptians never reached the Israelites that night because of the cloud. God protected his people so they could taste the victory on the other side. What does God promise you as a Christian What has he promised you? Does he give you time to repent? God is providing the Israelites opportunity and time for escape. And God's going to do even something even more amazing on this occasion. But God has given time and opportunity. And does God give you and me time for repentance? Yes. Acts 17 says, you know, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's why you have the gospel. And that's why the gospel has been preached Ever since the first century. Or 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. When talking about how temptation is common to all of us. When temptation is common to all of us. You see this idea. Okay. We're all in the same boat kind of thing. 
But we're told, we're promised, that God provides a way of escape that we might be able to endure it. He's not gonna, God didn't give us that temptation to sin. That temptation comes from my own heart. Mine comes from within me, and yours comes from within you. But God provides a way that you may be able to endure. Does God provide escape? Yes, and that's what God did here. And then, as a result, what we have is that God then divides the Red Sea. So it's a familiar story, but don't lose sight of the wonder and the amazement and the power at work here to save his people. The one who commands the wind and the water cut the path of salvation. That should cause you to think about someone else, shouldn't it? The one who commands the wind and the water. There's there's another story in the New Testament about one who calmed the storm and brought his people to safety. What Israel could not do here when God divided the Red Sea, what Israel could not do, God did. And what you and I cannot do, God does and has done. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, that it is by faith the Israelites, by faith the Israelites walked through the Red Sea as on dry ground. By faith, the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. It would have been a fearful thing to witness what transpired that night. Imagine yourself. Here you are. The cloud has moved behind you. The sea is dividing in front of you. That's never been done before. And you're witnessing it for the first time. And now you're told to walk down into that seabed. Imagine the faith of the Israelites at this moment. The faith it took to start walking down the seabed of the Red Sea and walk through the towering walls of water looming above your head. There is no glass like you have in an aquarium. It makes me nervous when I go to, you know, to aquariums. You go down, you got the, you know, the deep water things, and you're, and you're down there on that floor, and you're looking up, you know, and it's just glass between you and that force of water. That's unnerving to me, but I know there's glass there. There is nothing between the Israelites and the walls of water. It took faith. By faith, at the Lord's command, each person had to put one step in front of the other to go down and across and out. By faith, you too must go through water. You must be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins to be saved and be forgiven. Mark 16, 16 says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Or in Acts 22, verse 16, when Paul, the great apostle, is retelling the story of his conversion to Christ. And what an amazing conversion that is. 
a persecutor to a proclaimer of Christ. What an amazing thing. You see the power of the gospel at work. And here's Paul telling you that he was told, Why are you waiting? Why are you tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. Calling on the name of the, of the name of the Lord to wash away your sins. What are you waiting on, Paul? Get up, be baptized. That's why Peter also could write in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, when he says, in like manner, baptism now saves us. It's not the removal of filth from the flesh, such as we do when we take a bath. It's, that's not what it is. It's something so much great, more great, greater than that. It's the cleansing of our soul. It's the cleansing of our conscience. It's taking advantage of God's path of salvation and having enough faith to act upon that and to be buried with Christ by faith in baptism so that we can raise up and walk in newness of life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not rendered obedience to the light of the world, the Savior of the world, You've not confessed your faith with your mouth before others that He is the Son of God. You've not repented of the sins you committed in your life. And you've not been baptized into Christ. We want to encourage you to do that. God leads His people. He provides in a mighty way salvation. He's provided us His Son. He's provided us the light of the world. And He provides us the path that will remedy the problem that causes us to be separated from. Will you do that today? Will you call on the name of the Lord and be baptized in Christ so you may be added by the Lord Himself to His people? If you are a Christian, maybe there is sin in your life that you've not repented of. And you need to do that. You need to pray about that as the New Testament teaches you to do. If we can assist you in that, we invite you as well. We pray with you, we pray for you. Whatever your spiritual need may be today, we invite you to courage. Please come now, make your wishes known when we stand and sing the song that's been selected.